Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2. So two weeks ago, we looked at Mary's Magnificat, which was her response to being told by the angel Gabriel that she was going to be bearing the Messiah. We noticed that the first words out of her mouth were praise for God, her Savior. We talked about the personal nature of her Magnificat, how that's where she began. It began with her personally. She then reflected on how God had been faithful as well to Israel through the birth of the Messiah. Then last week, Dustin walked you through Zechariah's prophecy. Now, I don't know if there was anything heretical in there or not, because he didn't record it, so I didn't get a chance to hear it. So I heard that he did a fantastic job walking through that, focusing on Zechariah's prophecy as it related to John the Baptist and the preparation, preparing one's hearts and minds for the coming of the Lord. This week, we're actually going to look at the third passage in our series for Christmas here. It's from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 21. He's going to introduce us to two individuals. One is Simeon. The other is a prophetess named Anna. Like both Mary and Zacharias, uh, Simeon makes a prophetic declaration. We're going to spend some time looking at that as to what he has to say. When it comes to Anna, Luke basically does a real quick summary. It doesn't tell us what she said, but tells us that she praised the Lord. So we're going to look at her just very briefly and then kind of bring it all together to see what that ultimately means for us. So let's go ahead and start in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 21 through 24 to start. And this is where Simon blesses the Lord. Chapter 2, starting in verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they were they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now in order to understand our passage this morning, we have to understand or be familiar with three Old Testament laws and ceremonies. I'm going to just briefly touch on those for us. I'm going to give you the passages. You can look those up if you want to do that on your own, just for the sake of time this morning. But the first one was the law of circumcision. We find that in Genesis chapter 17, verses 9 through 14. After establishing his covenant with Israel, God gave to Abraham a sign of that covenant, and it would be an everlasting sign. And that sign was that every male child born in Israel would have to be circumcised, and they would be circumcised on the eighth day. That would serve as the sign of God's everlasting covenant with Abraham and all of his descendants, in other words, all of Israel. It was at that time, on that eighth day, where the name was given to the child as well. Luke actually refers to that. If you go back to verse 21 here, it says, "...and when the eight days had passed before his circumcision." His name was then called Jesus. And so what we basically have is Mary and Joseph fulfilling one of these Old Testament laws and ceremonies by taking Jesus on the eighth day into the temple to be circumcised. And that is where he was given the name Jesus. 
And we're told here that it was specifically told to Mary and Joseph they were to name him Jesus, and it was a name given prior to Mary becoming pregnant. And so that's the first thing that we actually see take place in this passage. Now the second one is the law of purification for not just mothers, but also their husbands. That comes from Leviticus chapter 12. I would encourage you to read the first eight verses there on your own sometime today. It's a neat passage. After the birth of a child, the mother was considered unclean for 40 days. And likewise, her husband, if he had contact with her, would be unclean as well. After seven days, however, if the child was a male, she was to go and make sacrifice. And to have that child, actually, I'm sorry, not the sacrifice yet, but to go have him circumcised. And so she would do that on the eighth day. But she was still unclean for another 30 some odd days after that. Because she was unclean for a total of 40 days. At the end of those 40 days, she was to go make sacrifice. And there were, generally she was supposed to bring a lamb of some kind. Um, If she couldn't afford a lamb, then she was to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. Because God allowed for those who weren't of great means to use something that was less expensive than a lamb. We see that in verses 22 and 24 here. If we go back to verse 22, the very beginning of it, it said, And when the days of their purification according to the law of Moses were complete, they brought him, meaning Jesus, up to Jerusalem to do the circumcision. But then it also says, as you jump down into verse 24, And to offer sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let me just back up a second here to clarify something. What happened is, on the eighth day, they actually went up and did the circumcision. What Luke does here is says in verse 22, after the days of their purification, that would be after the full 40 days. That's when they brought Jesus into the temple a second time. The first was to have him circumcised. The second was at the end of this 40 days. And that was actually to fulfill the third requirement, which was the consecration of the firstborn. You find that in Exodus chapter 13, the first two verses. And then Exodus chapter 13, verses 11 through 16 as well. And it describes the consecration of the firstborn. And it applied to both man and beast. The reason for it was this. Before rescuing and leading Israel out of Egypt, if you remember, one of the the last plague was the Lord was going to take and kill every firstborn male child in, in uh, Egypt. It was the final judgment and plague on Egypt and on the Pharaoh. But before he did that, he told the Israelites to put blood over the doorposts, and God was going to then spare the Israelites' firstborn. It was referred to as a redemption. He was going to redeem Israel's children. And that happened to both the firstborn child, the firstborn male child, but also the firstborn animal as well. Clean animals were to be sacrificed to the Lord, while the unclean were to be redeemed, just as well as the firstborn child. And so what the Lord basically did was he gave them this ceremony, this law, that to remember what he had done in Egypt, they were to then, going forward every year, they were to take and uh, celebrate this particular law and this particular ceremony as a way of remembering that the Lord had redeemed Israel's children when he judged all of Egypt's children. And so they were to take the firstborn out of the womb, both of, the, of um, humans 
and animals as well. And they were ultimately to redeem that child. And they would do that with animals by basically paying a price, and they would do it as well for male infants. In fact, the price was five shekels as it came to a male infant. And so what we basically find here in these first few verses is Luke is combining all three of these laws and all three of these ceremonies together into one narrative for us. They happened over a period of 41 days. And they fulfill all three of these laws. In fact, he even says that a little bit later in our passage. And so what we ultimately have right now is he describes Jesus' circumcision on the eighth day and then he brings us forward to the 41st day where Mary and Joseph now go into the temple where they're going to complete the other two, which is Mary's purification, but also Jesus' dedication. And Luke combines those for us in this narrative. Now there's two things I want to point out as we look at this. The first one is that three times Luke refers in this passage to this being according to the law or being obedience to it. He says twice that it was according to the law and then he also says it was written in the law. And so what we see here is a focus on Mary and Joseph fulfilling the law. And that's important because Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5 that Jesus was born under the law so that he could ultimately redeem those under the law. Listen to what he wrote. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Now Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. Matthew chapter 5 verse 17 basically says that he fulfilled the law. But then Galatians chapter 3 says that he ultimately took upon himself the curse of the law. Notice it says in Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. So Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. One was to be in perfect obedience to the law. He did everything that the law commanded, something no man has ever been able to do. Remember we're told he's sinless. So he fulfilled the law in that respect, but he also fulfilled the law in that he took the curse of the law upon himself, not for his sin, but because of our sin and sacrifice, which is mandated by the law. Sin can only be dealt with by death, so Jesus fulfilled that aspect of the law by becoming the curse that we should have been in redeeming us from that. And so it goes all the way back to his birth. Now you would say, well, Jesus didn't, do it here, but Mary and Joseph did it on behalf of Jesus by making sure that he was circumcised according to the law and making sure that he was dedicated to the Lord as part of the law. And so what we have is the perfect fulfillment of the law by Jesus all the way from the beginning of his birth to his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the first thing I think is important to point out here. And the reason was that that's the only way he could redeem those who were under the law. Now you might say, well, that would refer to the Jews, but it also refers to us, because if you look at Paul's discussion in Romans, even though we as Gentiles are not obligated to do the ceremonial aspects of the law, we were still under the law, because the law still condemned us. And so Jesus was able to fulfill all the requirements of the law so that he could ultimately redeem those who are under the law. And that's ultimately what Christmas is about. The second thing I want to point out is as we consider that, is when we look at just these few verses, 
it's remarkable the number of biblical themes and principles that we find just in these few verses. I want to point some of these out. You all understand the covenant. Covenant is an important theological principle throughout the Old Testament, even into the New Testament. God's covenant with Adam, God's covenant with Abraham, or even before that, God's covenant with Noah, his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with Moses, and the new covenant in Christ. Covenant is an important concept because it binds the Lord to us through his faithfulness, his covenant to us. It's an everlasting covenant. And we see that here because it's represented in Jesus' circumcision here. Because circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Another symbolism or another theme that we see here is salvation. You know what Jesus means? Anybody know what that what his name represents? It's the Hebrew form of Joshua, which means Yahweh saves. And the angel told Mary and Joseph, You will name him Jesus. Why? Because he saves. And so we not only see the concept of covenant show up in these few verses here, but we see the concept of salvation come up as well. In fact, when the angel told Mary to name him Jesus, he said, because he will save his people from their sins. We also see the theme of purification show up in this passage too. We're told that we are purified from our sins. Why? Because of Christ. We even see that really here because the focus here is on Mary's purification. So we see that theme show up in this as well. How about sanctification? That an important one for us as believers? To be sanctified means to be consecrated or set it apart for the Lord. We see that here because Jesus is being taken to the temple to be consecrated, set apart, much like Hannah did, if you remember the story of Hannah, with Samuel. She brought him to the temple and dedicated him to the Lord. And that's exactly what you see with Mary and Joseph here. And so we see the concept of sanctification, being set apart for the Lord's purposes. That's something that applies to us as believers as well. How about the concept of redemption? Do we see that in these first few verses here? You think about it, one of the reasons why um, the law demanded that they celebrate what the Lord did in rescuing them from Egypt was to remember the concept of redemption. And so we see that reflected here as well as they're consecrating Jesus to the Lord. It's not just about separation or consecration. It's about remembering the Lord's redemption of the firstborn in Israel. And so we see the concept of redemption. That's an important concept for us as well because we are redeemed. We are bought back. We are purchased by the blood of Christ that we might be adopted by our Heavenly Father. The last I see here is the concept of sacrifice. We see that in this passage as well here. The burnt offering and the sin offerings that Mary had to offer up as part of her purification. What a foreshadowing this is. Again, just these first few verses and we see a foreshadowing of covenant, salvation, purification, sanctification, redemption, sacrifice. All of that wrapped up. Now, I don't know if Luke was thinking that in his mind, but it's pretty clear in the text here that we see all of those things represented in these first few verses And it's all a lead-in to what Simeon is ultimately going to do now. So while they're at the temple, they meet a man named Simeon, and Luke gives us a little background. He tells us four specific things about 
Simeon. Look at verses 25 and 26. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. The first thing he tells us is that he was a righteous and devout man. That means that his faith in God was genuine. He was devoted to the Lord. He was somebody who was committed to righteousness through obedience to the law. Makes me think of people like Noah. People like Job. This was a righteous and devout man. The second thing we're told about him was that he was looking for the consolation of Israel. Now what in the world does that mean? He was looking for the consolation of Israel. Well, the word that he uses there, consolation, is actually the word paraclesis. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, the paraclete. Paraclete is the Holy Spirit. He's the comforter. And that's really what this word means. It it can be translated two ways. It can be translated as encouragement, but more often it's translated as comfort. And so what he was looking for was the comfort of Israel. What is that? As I started to work through this and think through it, it reminded me of Isaiah. And what's interesting is Isaiah uses this word of comfort at least 13 times. Now, it's a big book, 66 chapters. But one of the major themes in the book of Isaiah is God comforting Israel. And why would he need to do that? Well, if you remember... God was not happy with the Israelites because the Israelites continued the pattern that we found in the book of Judges. Constantly sinning and God having to intervene on their behalf and he would have to bring their enemies against him and judge them. Well, we get to the book of Isaiah and the Lord sent Isaiah to the southern tribes of Israel to warn them about their own sin and the fact that God was going to judge them by bringing the Assyrians in, the Babylonians in to conquer them and take them off into captivity, ending the nation of Israel at least as a national entity there. And so Isaiah went and prophesied that to them and warned them. But as part of that, he also said that a time would come when the Lord would comfort Israel. He would bring them back into the land. He would turn their hearts and their minds back to him. He would restore their national identity. He would ultimately bring about his kingdom. And so Isaiah promise them about comfort. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 66. In fact, the book actually ends on two notes. One is on comfort, and the second is on the judgment of the nations around Israel. Chapter 66 of Isaiah, verse 10. Listen to these words. It says, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her, that you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts. That you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like the overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, you will be carried on the hip, and fondled on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass. And the hand of the Lord will be made known to his servants, but he will be indignant toward his enemies. How many times did the word comfort show up in that passage? 
And that's the way the book of Isaiah ends. The Lord promised to comfort Israel. That was partially fulfilled when the Lord moved um, the king of Cyrus to actually send the Israelites back into Egypt. They were After their captivity of 70 years, they were able to go back to the land and sort of rebuild Jerusalem. And so part of this was fulfilled. Part of the comfort was fulfilled in that. But as you study through the book of Isaiah, what you realize is that some of the prophecies were meant to be immediately fulfilled at that time, meaning after their 70 years of captivity. But many of the promises of comfort related to a future time of Israel. And what's interesting about this is we talk about double fulfillment in the scriptures, meaning some prophecies have an immediate fulfillment, but then there's also a future fulfillment. Much like the promise of the coming of the Savior. There was an immediate fulfillment in the sense that he came at the very beginning of the first century, but we also know that he would that would, that would sort of be separated by a second coming. And so there's an immediate fulfillment and then there's a future fulfillment. Well, with Isaiah here, it's almost like there's three. There's a near fulfillment, and then this middle one, and then there's this far fulfillment, or there's this immediate, some something in the middle sort of, and then something even future, meaning that some of Isaiah's prophecies were meant to be fulfilled, the comfort would come when God would bring them back after captivity into the land. But then some of them were looking to this day, with the coming of Messiah, but some were to be filled ultimately in the thousand year reign of Christ in the millennial kingdom where the Lord brings Israel back to the land, fulfills all of his promises to Israel. And that's what you see throughout the book of Isaiah is this unfolding of this prophetic word that all involved the comfort of Israel coming right after their captivity, coming now with Christ, but then ultimately coming when God will fulfill everything and offer his final comfort, if you will, to Israel. And so when we look at what happens here with Simeon, it says that he's looking for the consolation of Israel. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for that comfort that God had promised through the prophet Isaiah. In fact, even the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, reflects on that as well. One of the last things the Lord says to the last prophet, 400 years before Christ came, was his promise to fulfill the comfort that he promised through Isaiah. And that's what Simeon is looking for. Now we have to keep something in mind here. Simeon lived at a very dark day in Israel's history. We don't often think of that. One, old, or one New Testament scholar, William Hendrickson, writes this. To be sure, conditions were, and this is talking about Israel, conditions were bad, very bad in Israel at the time of Jesus' birth in Jerusalem. Think of the loss of political independence, cruel King Herod, Herod that ruled them, under the oppression of Rome. Their religion had become very external. The scribes were legalistic. Same thing with the Pharisees. Same thing with many of their followers. It had become a very legalistic, external form of religion. The Sadducees were worldly-minded, The prophets had been silent. It had been 400 years since God had sent a prophet to Israel. It's referred to as the silent years, the 400 years of silence. God seemed to have abandoned Israel. Where was his promise of this comfort? Yet Simeon hadn't lost hope. He's looking forward to the consolation, the comfort of Israel. He had remained devout and faithful 
committed to the Lord at a time when Israel around him had not. I think there's only a, there's only one other man that specifically we're told was waiting for the consolation of Israel. You know who that was? Joseph of Arimathea, the one who buried Jesus. We're told very specifically that he was waiting for the same thing that Simeon. Now, that doesn't mean there weren't others. There was an expectation, a great expectation at the time of um, Jesus' birth, that Messiah was going to be coming. In fact, we can look at external, non-scriptural writings by the Essenes and others. For about 200 years prior to this, in their own writings, you could tell they expected something to happen. They had expected the Messiah to come. But their ideas of Messiah were radically different. They were all over the map. But there was something going on in Israel. There was a certain amount of excitement that Messiah was coming back. Most of them expected this giant political leader to come and squash Rome and reestablish Israel's dominance. But we know that's not what happened. It's not what God intended. But we have this man, Simeon, here, this godly, devout man who hadn't lost his faith, hadn't lost his hope that God was going to offer his comfort to Israel. And so there he is, sitting, waiting for Israel to be comforted by the Lord. All the things that Isaiah had promised. Luke tells us two more things about Simeon. Third one is that the Holy Spirit was upon him. You know, it's interesting because you almost expect that because of what we've been told so far with him. But as we've learned through the book of Acts, that's a phrase that usually is referred to those who are led, guided, empowered by the Holy Spirit. This was a man who you could look at and you could see the Holy Spirit oozing out of him. The fourth thing that Luke tells us about Simeon is that the Lord had made him a very special promise through direct revelation. It says that he would not die. The Lord had promised him that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. Can you imagine that? Here you are, remaining faithful to the Lord in spite of what's happening around you. You know what Isaiah said and you're just waiting and you're getting older. We don't know how old he was, but tradition says that he was 113 years old when he died. Don't know if that's true or not, but he was an older man. He was advanced in years. We don't know how long he'd been waiting, but probably quite some time. And all of a sudden, the Lord speaks to him and says, you're not going to die until you see my Messiah. So he's waiting. And all of a sudden, Mary and Joseph walk in with Jesus in their arms. Look at verses 27 through 32. It says that he came in the Spirit into the temple... And when the parents, Mary and Joseph, brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, they took him into it, or he took him into his arms and he blessed God and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Can you imagine the electric shock that must have gone through him as he recognized this is the one God told me I would see before I die? On the same day that Joseph and Mary came into the temple, it says that he was led in by the Holy Spirit. This was a divine appointment that the Lord had established for him. So he sees Jesus. Notice that he says when he lifts him up that the Lord was releasing him so that he could now depart in peace. This is 
what Dustin might have alluded to, I called Dustin the other night. He said, you know, it's interesting because we don't know much about Simeon. This is pretty much the only passage. There's debate as to whether he was a priest or not. The, as you look at the text, he seems to be, in some respects, there as a priest. Because, first off, Luke doesn't mention, he mentions that they come in to perform, to carry out the law which would have required a priest. The priest is the one that does the sacrifice. It's not like you just walked up to the altar yourself and did it. You had a priest that would do it on your behalf. You would bring the offering and the priest would then act on your behalf. Luke mentions no other priest here. The only other one he mentions is Simeon at this moment. What's interesting to me as we consider that, and this is speculation, I'll be real frank. Simeon sees this particular instance as a culmination of his ministry. Did you catch what he actually says there? He took him in his arms, verse 28, and he blessed him and he said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. He refers to himself as a bondservant, but he also references the fact that because of what God had done, he is now releasing him, allows him to die, his ministry is now finished. Think about this for a moment. And again, this is speculation on my part, but I'm somebody who believes that Simeon probably was a priest. He was in the temple. He was led there by the Lord. He seems to be participating in the events right here that Mary and Joseph came to the temple for. It would make sense that he's likely the priest. If that's the case, what he's just said is, my role as an earthly priest, I am now being released of that. My job is done. I can now go off and die. At a time when the Lord brings the new heavenly high priest to earth. What an amazing picture that is. And again, I'm, I'm speculating to some degree, but I don't think I'm speculating beyond what might be normal. Because again, it's all hinges on whether or not he was a priest. I think that context might suggest that he's a priest. But what an amazing picture, because he clearly says, now that I've seen your Messiah, you're releasing me. He doesn't just say I can go off and die. But the Lord is releasing me. What an amazing picture that is to see a priest whose job is to make sacrifice on behalf of us to the Lord that now is released from that role as the high priest who ultimately will become the sacrifice, both high priest and sacrifice on our behalf. And so we see this amazing picture here. I also find it interesting that as he looks at Jesus, did you know what he actually says? He doesn't say, oh, look, the Messiah. Notice what he says instead. For my eyes have seen your salvation. That's interesting. I mean, it's clearly true that he's looking on the Messiah, and it is the Messiah. And I would imagine in his mind he's thinking, look, the Messiah. But it's not what he declares out loud when he begins to praise the Lord. Instead he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. I think there's some importance there. The reason was this. Jesus wasn't merely Israel's Messiah. In fact, he was the embodiment of God's salvation for all mankind. He is the Lord's salvation. And Simeon recognized that. He goes on, he says that Jesus would be a light of revelation to the Gentiles 
which means truth to them, they hadn't been told, Messiah's coming too for you. Remember, that was promised to Israel. Israel was promised a Messiah. That's who God worked through. But now Jesus would become a light of revelation to them. What God had revealed to Israel, he would now reveal to the Gentiles through Jesus. But he also says that he would be the glory of Israel. So we have the two sides of this. But you notice something? He starts with the Gentiles, not Israel. Think about that for a moment. Throughout the Bible, salvation is always presented as first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. God basically established Israel through Abraham. Established the nation of Israel. Promised Abraham a seed. Right? We know that ultimately that's a reference ultimately to Christ. Jesus himself said that he first came to the house of Israel during his earthly ministry. When he sent out the 70, he told them, don't even go into the Gentile territories, just go to the house of Israel. The church began in Jerusalem with Jews. We've already seen that as we've been studying the book of Acts. It does indeed go to the Gentiles, but first to the Jews. Even Jesus, when he commanded his disciples, said what? Jerusalem, Judea, you know, he just kind of, finally the ends of the earth, right? Even the Apostle Paul. We've seen his own practice in the book of Acts, that he would first go to the synagogue, even when he knew they were going to kick him out. He still went to them. In fact, at one point he said, hey, I'm coming to you first, but since you rejected it, now I'm going to go to the Gentiles. He even wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, what? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but then to the Gentiles. Why is that? Because God's plan was to bring salvation to the world through Israel. That was his plan. It's not an issue of rank. It's not that the Jews are better than the Gentiles. It's that God first established his plan of redemption through Israel, but ultimately that it would save all of mankind. I believe that the reason why Simeon refers first to the Gentiles here is because he's looking at the universal nature of God's salvation. It applies to everyone And Dustin and I talked about this when we first talked about this series and how there's almost, I wouldn't say a progression necessarily, but you look at Mary, and Mary's Magnificat begins with what? Me. My salvation. It's very personal. She does talk about Israel, but as God's promise is fulfilled to Israel, but it's a very personal starting with her. Then you get to you know Zechariah and what, what Dustin shared last week, and um, you know the bringing of the foreigner of John the Baptist and preparing hearts and and all of that. And then you get to Simeon here, and now what we see is Simeon's focus is on the universal nature, the broader picture of God's plan of salvation for every man, woman, and child, which again is why I believe he started with the Gentiles. And so we have this amazing picture of God's purpose and plan for all of creation. That's appropriate. Paul says that we're grafted in to Israel. That's God's plan for us. And we see it wrapped up with Simeon here. So after he praises the Lord for these things, He then takes a look at Mary and Joseph and it becomes very personal for them at this point and Simeon now turns to them and after blessing the Lord, he now blesses them. Look at verses 33 through 35. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It's a rather somber prophecy, is it not? As he's looking at Mary and Joseph here, he basically declares that he would... Jesus, their son, would be the rise and the fall of many in Israel. Be assigned to be opposed. Those two kind of go. Those two kind of go hand in hand. Throughout the Bible, God is presented, or God is presented as one who brings down the rich, the haughty, the arrogant, the proud. But He lifts up the poor and the humble. If you remember in Mary's Magnificat, we showed that she showed that reversal that takes place. God is presented that way, of taking the proud and pushing them down and taking the humble and lifting them up. And that's some of the same imagery here that we find Simeon using. That he would ultimately be appointed for the fall of some, but the rise of others. Jesus was ultimately destined to become a stumbling block for some, but salvation to others. I want you to look at Revelation, or I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Starting in verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who have been saved it is the power of God, for it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What Paul describes there is exactly what Simeon here is telling Mary about her own son, that he would be the rise and the fall of many in Israel, ultimately the entire world, and that he would be a sign to be opposed Actually, it's been true all through history, has it not? Think about the way that Christ has been opposed throughout all of history. We have areas where we see tremendous growth in the Christian church, and we see areas where Christianity is persecuted beyond belief, beyond measure in some respects. You can often tell where somebody is at specifically and how they respond to Jesus Christ. You notice that Simeon goes on to say here that Jesus would ultimately lead to the thoughts of many hearts being revealed. That's an interesting statement. One's response to Jesus ultimately reveals their relationship to to God. No other way to say it. Jesus wrote in John, or Jesus said in John 8 chapter, verse 19, I'm sorry. John chapter 8 verse 19. He was talking to the Pharisees and he said this, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. The Pharisees opposed him. They were the high that were going to be brought low. We see that throughout the Gospels. Jesus' own Sermon on the Mount is a picture of that. 
that he would become one who would bless the humble, the poor in spirit through him, while the haughty and the proud would continue to reject him, and ultimately in the end, he would reject them. So as he's talking to Mary and Joseph here, it's pretty somber, because in order to bring about salvation, these things would be necessary. He would have to become a stumbling block. He would have to reveal hearts and minds. God would have to take those who are high and bring them low, and those who are low and bring them high, all through Christ. As a result of that, Simeon tells Mary in the middle of that, it's a parenthetical thought, he says, and a sword will even pierce your own soul. I often wonder, we have the picture of Mary in the Gospel of John standing near the cross, and Jesus speaking to her from the cross and telling John to take care of her. I can only imagine what must have been going through her mind. You know, she was promised to be the mother of the Messiah. She had seen what Jesus could do. And here he is hanging on a cross. Imagine the sword that went through her heart. Fortunately, it was only temporary. Through probably the trial and through the crucifixion, but three days later, that sword through the heart is replaced with joy. And I would imagine the words of her magnificent came screaming back to her mind, God, my Savior. So it's a bit somber, but necessary. Reminds us of the awful price that Christ paid for our sin. There's one other small section to this. Because while Simeon is saying these things to Mary and Joseph, somebody else walks up. It's a prophetess named Anna. Go ahead and look at verses 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day and fasting and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. So she's a widow. She's 84 years old. She was likely a widow probably for about 60 of those years, it sounds like, because she'd only been married for four years. And after she became widowed, she took up residence at the temple. It says she never left the temple. Now, outside of an area called the Court of Women, there were um, rooms and and places where you could actually live. And so it's assumed that she just literally lived at the temple, never left it. And she would spend her days and her nights, it says, in fasting and prayers, in service, and ministry to the Lord. So while Simeon is talking to Mary and Joseph, she happens to come up to him. And immediately it says, that very moment, she begins to thank God. Now Luke doesn't tell us what the substance of her thanks are, just that she begins to thank the Lord. We should, I think, safely assume that she overheard what was being shared, And that's the reason for her thanks, which means she's likely thanking the Lord that Messiah has now come. We know that's what she believed because of the very next phrase. Notice it says that she continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. 
She was, in essence, the first evangelist. Think about this. This is before John the Baptist. And there's Anna talking about Jesus to anybody that would listen to her talk about Jesus. Again, the first evangelist. So what do we do with all this? There are two things I want to kind of focus on as we wrap this up that I think um, might serve us well in terms of practical application. The first one is this. I'm struck by Simeon's faith and faithfulness. In spite of this dismal spiritual condition that Israel was in, um, in spite of God's 400 years of silence, he still believed God's promises. He still remained faithful. He still remained devout, committed to God. He was righteous. He was devout. He's looking for the comfort of Israel, the fulfillment of God's promises. He served the Lord faithfully, waiting for him to fulfill a promise that was given hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years prior to that. That's faith, is it not? seems to me that he might be a good example for us. Why do I say that? Much like Simeon, we live in a world that is in a dismal spiritual state. And I think you could probably agree with me that it's spiraling further and further down into sin, corruption, and wickedness. As we look around the world, we not only see things that were considered abnormal un- or immoral, if you will, that are now considered perfectly fine, promoted, celebrated, encouraged. And people prosecute, or not prosecuted, well, some prosecuted, and some persecuted if you disagree. I'm one who's convinced that we're all headed in the direction that we see prior to the, fall, prior to the flood. But rather than God having to destroy the earth, he'll have to redeem it, send Christ back, But that's the direction this world is headed. And so we're living in a kind of a dark place in a dark time now. I think it'll get worse. Some recent studies and other things that have come out have talked about the decline of Christianity in America, which is pretty staggering when you think about it. As you look at the world, you look at these organizations that track persecution, all of them, all of them, have seen a staggering increase in Christian persecution around the world. Remember when we fight back against the enemy, how the enemy fights back as well? That's what we see. And so much like Simeon, we live in a world that's in a dismal spiritual state. We also have to wait. We don't know how long he waited, but it's been almost 2,000 years since Christ promised to return. And we're still waiting. We're just like Simeon. Simeon didn't lose faith. Simeon didn't get lax in his behavior, much like the rest of the Jews, who eh, has become ritualistic, legalistic, you know? Wasn't loving God from their whole from their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Simeon remained a devout, God fearing lover of God even though it had been 400 plus years, even though he was surrounded by corruption and a faithless Israel. I believe we're in a place now where even large parts of the Christian church are becoming faithless. Apostate, that's predicted in the scriptures. 
question is, what are we going to do? Are we going to be like Simeon? Not lose hope? Still know that God will fulfill his promise? The scriptures tell us that we are to fix our eyes on one thing. Glorious appearing. We are to be looking for Jesus because he promised to come back. And so I think Simeon serves as a great example, especially at a time like this. We know he came the first time. That's why we celebrate Christmas. He'll come again. And what Jesus wants are people just like Simeon, who are faithfully waiting in obedience and expectation for him to return. Second thing, if Simeon serves as an example, I believe Anna can as well. What do we know about Anna? We know she's a prophetess. We know she thanked God. But what is Anna known for? Luke tells us one thing. And what was the one thing she was known for? Somebody want to help me out here? What did she do? Spoke about him to anyone who was willing to listen, or in this case, all those who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. What did Jesus tell us? Why are we still here? He gave us a commission. To what? Be his witnesses. We talk about that often. That's why we're here. Some of us are evangelists by gifting. Some of us are not. But all of us are to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have and serve as his witnesses. The Great Commission applied to all believers. Make disciples by baptizing and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. And lo, I am with you, what? To the end of the age, until I return. That's the commission. When Jesus gave the commission in the book of Acts to the apostles. It's interesting that as I was thinking through this, I thought of a passage of scripture from Titus that actually summarizes these two things together. Listen to what Paul wrote to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Does that sound like Simeon? Look at this. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Does that sound like Simeon? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And now listen to this. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Does that sound like Anna? So Paul, as he's writing to Titus, reminds him, ultimately, be like Simeon and look for Christ to return. Stay faithful and committed until you see him. And then just like Anna, keep telling people about him. I think those are our two greatest takeaways from this passage today. I think it's a great way to wrap up our Christmas series as we are here celebrating Christmas, we really ought to not be celebrating the past as much as we are celebrating the future. Because the coming of Christ simply began 2,000 years ago, but it will not be complete until he comes. And so as we celebrate this little baby in the manger and celebrate his first coming, we ought to be looking forward to his second coming and telling people, anybody who's willing to listen. Amen?